Hi, everybody. Welcome to Marvel Reread Club. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. Wait. Oh, right. No, I did this wrong. <laughs> Let's try that again. Yes. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So, how you been this week, Matt? I've been good. For some reason, they gave us four days off for President's Day at the kids' school. So we went ahead and we drove to Kalamazoo. We dropped the kids off with the grandparents. And then we got a bed and breakfast and spent the weekend at a bed and breakfast writing. Uh, My wife is working on her new novel. And I was working on various projects. And that went swimmingly. Great. That's fantastic. Yeah, my... uh... Uh, my daughter also has four days for uh, President's Day weekend, but the days are today and tomorrow. Okay, what have we been doing around here? Uh, nothing of interest. So, <laughs> reading comics, that's it. Let's go ahead and get into talking about them here. So, I presume we are starting with Amazing Spider-Man? Yes. So, uh, let's try to, with our last two months, we each got broken up into two episodes. We've only got six books this month. There is no Doctor Strange backup. There is, however, a new Tales of Asgard backup. But yes. I think we can get through. We've got seven stories, six books. I think we can do it. Let's boom, boom, boom. Okay. I think we can probably do that too. So Amazing Spider-Man. First of all, I'm just going to come out right out and say it. I think Amazing Spider-Man number five is the first dud of the series. I would not go so far as to call it a dud. I think it could safely be said this is the weakest issue so far. He's fighting Dr. Doom right away here on the cover. Ditko's not great at Dr. Doom. He just cannot get the hang of drawing Dr. Doom and making him look menacing. He is not very menacing in this issue. Not imposing. He's not threatening. He's not very menacing. It is a huge problem with this issue. However, I have a lot of affection for this issue. If you are going to be making the case that this episode is a total dud, I will be pushing back at you. Okay, well, get ready to push. I will. (laughs) Just right up front, I just thought that the art in this issue was generally subpar, and I think that largely has to do with the fact that he's drawing this Kirby villain that isn't his forte, uh, you know, in a Kirby-type environment. I just really don't think that is uh, leveraging Ditko's skills very well. And also, Doctor Doom is completely out of character in here. He's, like, very needy, you know? (laughs) Okay, so let me just go in and get into the whole thing here. First, we see Peter Parker tormented, both by J. Jonah Jameson on screen and by his classmates so he's getting it getting it in both directions here dr doom meanwhile decides you know what to defeat this fantastic four what i need i need to recruit spider-man to help me because reasons also uh, apparently dr doom has a manhattan hideout like yeah. just in, in a building somewhere just yeah weird. just like in like in the warehouse district yeah that's yeah. that's pretty it's very strange yes uh so then dr doom decides to use some kind of a spider to then amplify some sort of spider thing to then communicate to spider-man over his spider sense which you know okay but also it's gone back and forth over the years about whether his spider sense is something that is publicly known or not uh here it seems to be assumed that it is i know that in some later comics in the 80s you know he basically would sort of act on the assumption that people didn't know what it was anyway so um so uh, clearly it is and uh, dr doom is using it to get in contact with him he contacts spidey who then shows up spidey's and he's like you know oh well look we're both outcasts and so you know uh we we should we should team up and destroy the fantastic four uh spider-man has none of it he tries to web him up but then it turns out it was a doom bot so we have a you know 
multiple appearances of Doombots in this one. They have a fight, a relatively lackluster fight, and then Spidey ends up jumping into the river to get away from him. I should say he jumps into the river to get away, which is classic what I talk about on my blog, the inconsequential confrontation. So often in Super Comics, you'll end, you'll see two people fighting and then they're like, well, we want them to fight again later in the issue, but there has to be a reason why this ending ends inconsequentially. So one of them goes flying out a window and into the river. This is a classic thing. But then Spider-Man does then actually try to go back and continue the fight. But then the entire Dr. Doom laboratory explodes. And uh, so he's like, Doom was one step ahead of me. He blew up the deserted building before I could get back at him. He's probably miles away by now planning his next move. So this is a classic way to sort of begin the issue with the fight and then delay the rest of the fight until the end of the issue. And of course, Spider-Man is then suspected for the explosion because he is seen near the scene of it as this happens. And people are starting to believe JJJ's stuff. They're like, hey, look, Spider-Man, he must be part of it. All right, so then he goes into the Daily Bugle's offices and uh, we get the first hints of flirtation and attraction between him and Betty, uh, which we're going to see more of later in the issue. But this is the first glimpse of it. So she is defending Spider-Man. She's like, I think Parker is right, sir. I've heard some of our readers mention they think that you're jealous of Spider-Man for some reason, which brings us a whole another issue of what exactly is the psychology of J. John Jameson that is never made clear over the years. And then Peter thinks, well, well, I never knew I had an ally in J.J.'s secretary, and I never realized how pretty Betty Brandt was either till now. Dicko, unlike his successor on the book, John Romita, John Romita is, is a glamour girl penciler. Yes. And he specializes in pretty women. And Dicko does not. Dicko does not specialize in, no. you know, va-va-voom pretty women. So Betty Brandt is not, does not strike us. I think the readers of this book is like, wow, look at her. She just seems like a normal, you know, young woman, as indeed Peter is a normal young man, and they just have a normal young interest in each other. But this is not like the later days with Gwen and Mary Jane, where we're just, our eyes are popping out of our sockets. Right. Uh, yeah, no, uh, the, I think Ditko's weakest weakest part as point as an artist and i don't think anyone would dispute me on this is drawing pretty women it's just not his but i don't think he needs to i think that he does i think his women are just fine i think his women look like normal human regular women and i think betty brandt is a believable woman i think that she is a strong character i can see what peter sees in her i'm just not bowled over by her myself. Certainly when Clea comes along in Doctor Strange, I think that she is, again, not Zowie, look at Clea, but I think that I'm like, oh yeah, you know, she seems like a good love interest for Doctor Strange. Yeah, uh, I just think that, you know, sometimes when they have a character who's specifically supposed to be conventionally pretty, you yeah. just can't bring it. One way or the other. Uh, we then see that uh, Flash Thompson is dressed up as Spider-Man for a prank they're going to play on Puny Parker. Flash is meanwhile saying that, you know, the girls did a great job sewing me the Spider-Man costume it looks so authentic meanwhile then we cut away to dr doom who has decided that if spider-man won't join him he will then kidnap spider-man and force him to be part of a plot to destroy the fantastic four so he builds some sort of spider sensing serum or something like that that's going to help him track down when he finds spider-man well of course flash is going to play this prank on pete and so pete happens to be walking right by when flash dressed as spider-man is right near him, that's when Dr. Doom shows up and says, aha, my spider scope, or whatever this is, says Spider-Man's near, and there he is. So he kidnaps Flash Thompson instead as Peter Parker walks blissfully by. I've got to say that, generally speaking, this issue is below Doom's dignity. (laughs) 
But for some reason, nothing seems further below Doom's dignity than Doom sort of trudging through the grass next to this fence, this wooden fence in this like abandoned field in Queens. And it's just, it just looks so pedestrian, like literally pedestrian. He's literally walking through a field. He is not striding. He is not strutting. He is just sort of plodding through this overgrown field in Queens to kidnap Spider-Man himself without having uh, any help. And uh, he's even got Thuppelin, so we know it's not a Doombot. And it is, it's really below Doom's dignity. I I would be extremely surprised if somebody hasn't later retconned this to have been a Doombot. It's just, you know, but this whole thing, like Dr. Doom never appeared in this entire (laughs) issue. It was just nothing but Doombots who each thought that the other one was Dr. Doom or something like that. It was, you know, (laughs) that that, that would, that seems like something that John Byrne would have, uh, would have pulled up at some point in his run on Fantastic Four. Yes. So Doom then hacks the local TV station and broadcasts Spider-Man hostage video. Uh, Pete sees this and sees that Doom is saying that he has got Spider-Man hostage, and he's like, um, what? So the kids, meanwhile, call Pete, asking him if they know where Flash is. They're like, we're really worried. They knew that he was about to prank Pete, and so they're wondering if Pete might know what happened to him. And at first, he's like, eh, my bully just is, you know, there's my bully's in trouble. Uh, great, that works out fantastic for me, but of course... With great power must come great responsibility. So he's like, all right, I got to go out and do something about this. But May is like, hey, Pete, you know what? There's like kidnapping and Dr. Doom and all this stuff going out in the city. I don't want you walking outside today. So he actually goes and blows a fuse in the basement on purpose to have an excuse to have to go out and buy a new fuse, which is, you know, that's, that's a little low. (laughs) that's uh yeah so anyway then at this point he just needs to figure out where doom is so he just basically swings around the city blindly until his spider sense kicks in and it seems like it's a while but then finally his spider sense kicks in he figures out where doom is comes down a little chimney to fight him they have another fight fighty does a lot of weird stuff with his webs in this one which you know i'm never the biggest fan of when he does really clearly impossible stuff with his webs. Yeah. And he does a lot of that in this one. And among other things, it's like, how much web fluid do you have in that thing? Then it turns out, once again, there is at least one Doombot in here because Spidey is getting the drop on him and then another Doombot comes up behind him or I forget which one is the robot and which one isn't. One way or the other. There are multiple Dooms uh, running around here. At least one of them or both of them is a Doombot. Then there's this flying disintegrator thing which is going around trying to shoot Spider-Man. It then becomes clear that it can't hurt Doom. He's like, I wouldn't unleash a wild weapon like this if I was going to be hurt by it. So then we have something that, and Matt, I know that this is one of your pet peeves when it comes to stories, particularly action adventure stories. Doom is trying to force Spidey back into this disintegrator beam, and Spidey's just like, oh, another inch and I'm done for. Spider strength, if I ever needed you, I need you now. Exerting every last bit of power contained in a superhuman body, the amazing Spider-Man, executing one last maneuver, manages to twist suddenly so that both figures sprawl against the control panel, halting the deadly disintegrating bolts. I did it! So basically, the difference between what was going on in the previous panel and what's going on now is he just really wanted it. Yeah. 
you know, which, I mean, isn't that sort of one of the things that you often <laughs> complain about in, in these yes. sorts of things? Yes. I always, um, I always prefer so, to solve it cleverly. Dr. Doom really starts getting the upper hand on him. At one point, he throws, like, some kind of glitter that's blinding Spider-Man. I don't exactly know what's going on with that. It seems, once again, kind of below uh, Doom's dignity to be throwing yeah. some kind of sparkly flakes at him. Um, and then he's using some kind of machinery to try and whack Spider-Man, but Spidey's spider sense is still getting the best of him, but Doom is finally about to unleash the final blow on him when he hears the Fantastic Four are actually approaching in the Fantasticar, and he's like, oh, I'm not ready to fight them yet, so he just bails. Uh, so Spider-Man is like, oh, well, this is awesome. This Fantastic Four is going to come in. They, you're going to find out that, hey, guess what? I held off Dr. Doom on my own, and he's gone. You didn't get here in time, but I took him on, and, and he's like, wait a minute. I told Aunt May I was just going to run out and buy a fuse at the corner store. Okay, I need to run. So he runs out and, of course, isn't able to get any of that gloating in with the Fantastic Four. Uh, the Fantastic and Four it also came. completely does not occur to him to rescue Flash, who, no. as far as he knows, is still stuck in Doom's holding, holding cell. He is still and, stuck uh, in Doom's holding cell. And, <laughs> like, the idea that he was originally going there to rescue Flash has completely slipped his mind. He's got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Right. So, um, so then the Fantastic Four show up and uh, they rescue the Ursatz Spider-Man here. Then at the very end, we see Pete apparently has forgotten to take photos, and um, he did not stoop to his usual low photojournalism ethics, as you were talking about the other day. So he just doesn't have any photos, and JJJ is upset with him. Although Betty says, "Don't feel too badly, Peter." I may only be JJ's secretary, but I think you're wonderful. Which, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's a, you know, okay, they were ratcheting this up a notch here. Next day, he's thinking about her a little bit, and like, okay, you know what, I think I like her. Comes up on his friends, and he's like, oh, well, at least Flash will have been taken down a notch by being kidnapped. And then it turns out that Flash is just bragging about all the stories about how tough he was with, uh, with Dr. Doom. And everyone's like, oh, so wow. Naturally, naturally, I wasn't scared of that crumb Dr. Doom. He couldn't keep me prisoner for long. Yeah. And uh, then meanwhile, uh, I'm, I presume Liz Allen is then just trying to twist the knife with Peter there about what a real man Flash is and uh, that he was able to stand up to Dr. Doom, unlike a panty waist like Peter Parker. There we go. I, I mean, certainly the weakest Spider-Man story we've gotten since the beginning of his everything. That being said, sounds like you enjoy this story a little bit more than me. To be fair, <laughs> they have had an impeccable run of four and a half issues before this four issues and then amazing fantasy before that they had one coming and uh they, they used it up here i feel like it was a good idea to go ahead and put spider-man up against dr doom i felt like it was it's a fun i mean i think the flash element is the element that makes the story work for me i really think it's fun to have flash escalating his feud uh, with Parker, and uh, I think it's just, it's funny to have Flash dressed up as Spider-Man accidentally get kidnapped by Doctor Doom, and then Spider-Man seeing on the news that he's been kidnapped by Doctor Doom and realizing it's not him, and it's really Flash who is pretending to be him for a prank. I think that that is a clever idea to turn a story on, and it works well enough. I would have loved to see Peter, instead of just suddenly realizing, oh, I have to get back to Aunt May, I would have loved to see Peter actually rescue Flash, bring the story to its natural conclusion but yeah it's definitely a weaker issue first and foremost because dicko just can't either dicko as potter can't give doom his proper dignity or especially dicko as penciler can't give doom his proper dignity dicko's 
villains in the first four issues were just these wonderful down-to-earth characters to handle a character who is not down-to-earth, who he cannot not make these sort of working-class villains like the Vulture, like Sandman, like, well, Dr. Octopus to a certain extent, I wouldn't call him working-class, but he's definitely uh, grubby to a certain extent. Doom is just not that. There's a reason why Doom will not become a regular villain for Spider-Man. By the way, one thing that I just realized I forgot to mention as I was going through that is at one point in the book, Dr. Doom uses finger guns against uh, Spider-Man. He says, I am not entirely without little weapons of my own, such as this most effective miniature finger gun. So I'm just like, oh, so he is using Isaac technology. Um, Or is that too dated a reference? Hey, hey, is this thing on? Hello? Um, (laughs) I I think we're having Zoom issues. What is Isaac technology? (laughs) Okay, so not even you're getting it. Okay, this is is definitely not a joke. I'm I'm 46, Um, and I think I'm a little young for this joke. uh, (laughs) uh, You might be. How much Love Boat do you remember watching? (laughs) (laughs) I'm too young for that, man. I'm a young man. I am a spry 46-year-old, and I did not watch. I was too young for Love Boat. Oh, we, oh, we watched you love boat. Uh, you, you might just not remember it. I remember, uh, when mom and dad would go out to movies and we would just be on our own as kids. We, I would often watch love boat (laughs) and you would be there anyway. Okay. Well, you, you can choose whether or not to leave that in. Isaac was, (laughs) Isaac was like the bartender. Yes. And And he he, had finger guns. Well, he, he would do that whole thing where he'd like shoot you to point two fingers at you and give you a wink. Okay. Those are, those are finger guns. Okay. Okay. You know, you, you, right. you know what? You, you you can decide whether to put leave this in and leave me hanging in all of my <laughs> it in was all of my funny. lack of dignity. <laughs> Much like Doctor Doom, you had yes. your dignity stripped away. Yes. Okay. Yes. Although I and and I guess in both cases we did it to ourselves. Yes. Uh, Indeed. All right. Ironically. <laughs> so shall we move on to Fantastic Four, which I believe is going to be yours? As I've said before, we are about to lose the secret weapon of Lee and Kirby's Fantastic Four, who is, I feel, Dick Ayers. I feel like Dick Ayers has really been, you know, I come more than you do. I feel like he's really been knocking out of the park on these 19 issues. He is about to leave. And I think that it will, I think you you give Kirby a weaker anchor and somehow it infects everything Kirby does. And I think that, generally speaking, the issues 20 to 40 are not going to be as strong as, or I should say, I think that issues 21 to 40 are not going to be as strong as issues 1 to 20 on this book. But we are still in the salad days at this point. This is Fantastic Four number 19 at the mercy of Ramatat, the Pharaoh from the future. Is Pharaoh, wait a second, did they spell Pharaoh correctly this time? This is our second recent issue. I have no clue. This is our second (laughs) recent issue in which... They have had an ancient Egypt-style story. I know they misspelled Pharaoh last time. Let me Google. This looks like the same spelling they had last time, but I honestly have no idea how you spell Pharaoh. It's supposed to be A-O-H. So no, they're still misspelling it. At the mercy of Ramatat, the Pharaoh of the future is still misspelled. And you see on the cover, the three men are being hit by a ray gun being shot by a white dude Pharaoh, and Sue is dressed up to be his bride. Yet another fantastic villain yet another fantastic story i feel like the fantastic four always are the best when they are somehow transporting themselves to a wild world of some sort whether it is the future or the past or another planet and uh this is certainly one of those so we begin the members of the team are looking for ben ben is out walking with alicia they want them both to come back for a reason they have found something amazing. Reed talks about when he and Sue were at an Egyptology exhibit to the Museum of Natural History, and he saw in the hieroglyphics that it looked like 
there was a cure for blindness in the hieroglyphics. And, and he's specifically, like, specifically, the hieroglyphics indicate that it is a radioactive herb because the ancient Egyptians had a term for radioactivity, apparently. Yes. So, uh, so then Reed says, Hey, remember way back in issue five when Dr. Doom kidnapped us and took us to his castle, which we never made clear at the time where it was and sent us in a time machine. And then we left at the end. Well, I'll bet that castle is still sitting there abandoned and still has the time machine in it, which I did not bother to dismantle and take home with me. Um, so (laughs) it's probably still just sitting there. Dr. Doom probably hasn't done anything with it. We haven't done anything with it. Also, come to think of it, didn't Doom, like, burn the place down when he left? That just now occurred to me. Yeah, the castle wasn't in great shape at the end of that book, <laughs> if I remember correctly. But yeah. uh, but they decide, uh, let's go check it out. So then they go, and they sort of explain it. They're like, a short time later, the fabulous foursome's famous VTOL pogo plane, and then says underneath vertical takeoff and landing, reaches the almost inaccessible site of their archfoe's now deserted castle. So the reason why no one has been here since they left it is that it is nearly inaccessible, almost inaccessible. Sure, so, we'll go with that. And it, it still has crocodiles in the moat, which also didn't help. And so then they go, and sure enough, they find that the time machine is just sitting there waiting to be used again. They leave Alicia in charge of running the controls, and they go back to ancient Egypt. They can tell they're back in ancient Egypt. So that's also made much more clear here than it ever has before, that this is not just a time travel device. This is a time and space travel device because we see them, you know, go from upstate New York to then arriving at the base of the Sphinx in ancient Egypt. So this is like the TARDIS time and relative dimension in space. They have gone back in space and time. And I I will also point out that apparently someone has still been paying the electric bills at Dr. Doom's (laughs) castle. If they're able to go ahead and crank this sucker up, it's all solar panel based. So it's, (laughs) it's, you know, Dr. Well, Dr. Doom does wear green. He does. He's a very green villain. So uh, he likes to, likes to keep a low carbon footprint. So then they they are attacked by soldiers and Kirby just really goes all out. He has a lot of fun with them all being attacked by these soldiers. And I got to say, Sue, whenever they're attacked by armies of entirely male soldiers, he, they never do something like, oh, and then Sue fights the girl. You know, Sue is always just kicking male ass along with the rest of them. <laughs> And uh, so then you get just a fantastic panel of Reed literally twisting himself in knots. uh, Oh, yeah. Forcing a lot of chariots to uh, run in circles. And then Sue, they always do this thing where it's like a bunch of people are attacking me and I'm going to turn invisible. So they all just run into each other. It's like, well, you didn't turn intangible. You just (laughs) turned invisible. Like if everybody was running right towards you and then you turn invisible, then they're probably still going to hit you unless, you know, you're just anyway. So then Sue tricks a bunch of people into going towards each other. But then they all lose their powers one by one. And it turns out that they're then they sort of cock out and they wake up in the throne room of Ramatata who uh, reveals, and this is one of the lamer things about this issue, is they completely sort of steal his backstory from a previous Thor villain that we fought, Zarko the Tomorrow Man, where, again, he reveals that, you know, in the future, you know, there was a peaceful world and there there were no threats in the future, and I could not stand this peaceful world. He says, Yes, I come from the year 3000, the glorious age of enlightenment, the century of peace and progress, the ultimate in civilization and culture, and I hated it. So then he decides, he realizes that one of his ancestors, presumably Dr. Doom himself, invented the time machine, and that he will then go ahead and build himself 
a gigantic sphinx put that can travel through space and time, put the time machine in it, go back, land in ancient Egypt, and try to rule ancient Egypt. He then sort of crashes so that well, he can't... Well, uh, of course, of course, the... The the Doctor Doom time machine we have seen multiple times is a rectangle that rises up and then you're in a different time and space. How that work? How you put that inside a Sphinx so that the Sphinx itself can travel back in time like a ship? I'm not entirely sure, but I guess Indeed. that he is he is Doctor Doom's offspring in some way, uh, or possibly Doctor Doom himself, as will come up in a really bizarre issue. Uh, Few, uh, year or two later um, but yes. uh, so I guess he just reworked this whole thing in some way yes so then he recalls going back to ancient Egypt and taking over meanwhile he uh, is finishing telling the story to the Fantastic Four he hits them with the ray again he decides to put them all to work so then he puts Ben rolling as a galley slave on a galley ship he puts Reed to work uh, when armies are fighting, he has Reed stand up and stretch himself really tall so that he can peer over the walls at what the other armies are doing. He has Johnny as a sort of fire juggler to entertain the court. And uh, Sue is going to be his bride, and she is all dressed up in beautiful Egyptian finery to get prepared to be his bride. So then we always talk about in these issues how much afterlife they've had in the Marvel Universe. And like, oh, this is an issue that's come up many times. Well, this issue will be a particularly juicy issue for later storytellers because then something happens that is relatively unexplained at the time or it is sort of lamely explained. They show Ben rolling in this galley ship and then suddenly it says, for there, under the heat of a sun far hotter than that of 20th century New York, the body chemistry of the imprisoned thing undergoes a subtle change until as the rays get hotter and hotter, the molecules of his body begin to react in a startling manner and he becomes Ben Grimm. Well, later... There will be an absolutely wonderful issue of Doctor Strange, written by Roger Stern, penciled by Marshall Rogers, in which it is revealed that Doctor Strange is also back here in Egypt at this time, and that he he actually casts a spell to turn the thing into Ben Grimm. So that that story was a lot of fun. And then later, they had a big time travel storyline in West Coast Avengers, where it turned out the West Coast Avengers are also in Egypt at this time and place, and were always just out of view of both the Fantastic Four and Doctor Strange when they were all there. So this issue is an issue that a lot of other people have had a lot of fun with. Yeah, and I think when uh, we spoke with Douglas Wolk a few episodes ago, uh, I'm pretty sure in his book he talks about this particular issue and all of that revisiting that's been done and all of the other characters who have all time-traveled to the same place and somehow never bumped into each other. Uh, so, I really yes. explained in those issues. And so, so then, so, well, well, hold on, wait. So before we move on from here, I just want to point out that let's look at the three panels where uh, Thing turns into Ben Grimm. So first panel, there he is, is the Thing holding the oar. Second panel, he's halfway Ben Grimm, and he somehow has already grown back his pinky, which, you know, was not there in the previous panel. That's okay. You know, that's going to happen. I, I buy that. But then in the third panel, he then is able to get out of his shackles because he's now sh smaller. Were there any shackles in the previous two panels? <laughs> I assume they were being blocked by his stony hands, but yes, it's an excellent question. <laughs> it's uh, it is, it is, it was not clear in the previous two panels he was shackled at all. So it is funny. But so then we get an absolutely gorgeous sequence in which Ben Grimm breaks out across the deck of the ship, ducks his way out, swims away from the galley, commandeers a chariot, chariots his way across town. It is a gorgeous sequence. We then cut to the throne room where Johnny is entertaining Sue and Ramatut. Ben 
sneaks in from behind, grabs Ramatet's gun, knocks him out. He then gets knocked out, but just before he passes out, he t- turns the gun on Sue, releases Sue. Sue then gets knocked out, but just before she gets knocked out, she turns the gun on Johnny, releases Johnny. No, Johnny let's, just, then... let's just be clear. They they established earlier that shooting the gun at somebody once removes their powers. Shooting it at them again returns their powers. Exactly. And, exactly. and, and that and the thing had turned back into Ben Grimm. And that released him from the spell, but then here he's turning back into the thing. And so then he was re that's why he passed out, is he was, you know, recaptured by the spell. So then that's why we're shooting the gun at the people and they're getting better. Yes. So then uh Ramatut runs away. Sue, Johnny, and Ben then have to go find Reed. They find Reed in an absolutely gorgeous panel where it turns out Reed is being used uh, again, like the army is sort of besieging these castle walls of somebody and Reed has stretched himself out into this massive tarp that is catching all the spears that are being thrown at the soldiers. And we see him in this gigantic tarp form catching all these spears in his stretchy self. And it is a gorgeous panel. They get caught up with Reed. They're like, okay, let's all go find Ramatat. They go inside the Sphinx, which has this whole sci-fi interior. He tries to flood them out briefly. And then there is another wonderful panel of Reed stretching him his way through the sort of ducts. Uh, I always like it when uh, Reed has to stretch himself into tiny places. Uh, Ramatat escapes. He has a little time pod that he shoots off into time and space, goes away. They're like, oh no. Sue suddenly runs in and says, everybody, look what I found. And she has found the optic nerve restorative, which thankfully is labeled in English as optic nerve restorative. Oh, okay, um, so so let me let me just uh, mention one thing that we forgot to talk about earlier was that Rama Tut or whoever the guy was who named himself Rama Tut was somehow blinded in his trip back into the past, and then uh, this whole radioactive herb was something that was made radioactive by his Sphinx time travel machine, and that that had cured his blindness. But here's the other thing that I meant to mention. So they have a discussion when they wake up in Rama Tut's throne room, and Rama Tut is speaking to them. They're like, hey, how do you know who we are? And why do you speak English? He never ask that question because then every other time when there's just somebody who randomly is able to speak English or when somebody is communicating with, as later we'll see with Iron Man, where, you know, it's like, oh, well, hey, I'm talking to this Russian guy and he would expect me to be speaking Russian, but can I speak Russian? I don't know. You know, it's like you don't ask that question once. You don't answer that question once because then you're going to want to ask it every time. So <laughs> that jumped yes. out at me. Okay. So yes. uh, uh, yeah. generally speaking in the Marvel universe, everybody all over all of time and space speaks English. That's the only way that it makes any sense. It, it's like D and D common, right? It's just, yes. you know, common language. There you go. So then they decide to go back to the future, but then when they go back to the future, it turns out they can't actually bring the optic nerve restorative with them because the time machine has been specifically set up to not allow anything radioactive to go from time to time, which I got to say, good good thinking on Dr. Doom's part. If there's one thing we've learned in the Marvel Universe is people are not careful enough with radioactivity. And that in this case, Dr. Doom is like, you know, it's one thing to create a time machine, but I don't want to do it irresponsibly. And I've got to make sure it's not going to be used to transport anything radioactive. So I'm going to set up a little fail safe in it. Well, so then, know, Matt, I, I got to point out, though, that it, you say people in the Marvel Universe don't treat their radioactivity safely enough. You know, the United Auto Workers clearly are disposing of their <laughs> radioactive waste in a responsible manner. I mean, we saw that last month. 
Yes, at their <laughs> auto plants, for some reason, they're also dealing with nuclear waste, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that not a lot of nuclear waste involved in car production. <laughs> that but, you know uh, of. That I know of. Yeah, exactly. That's, a, that's what they want me to think. <laughs> so then they apologize to Alicia. They say this didn't work. But now we know it can happen and we will cure you eventually. There will be a lot of time spent over the years of Reed trying to cure Ben becoming the thing. Not a lot of time spent him trying to cure Alicia's blindness, but occasionally it'll come up. So that was the end of this issue. I think this is just a fantastic issue. It is. I love it when they go on these epic quests. This is worthy of issue five where they went back to try to get Blackbeard's treasure. Ramatut turns out to be a hugely important villain in that he becomes Kang. That eventually they will reveal that he and Kang and Amortis and the Scarlet Centurion are all actually one person and possibly also Dr. Doom. And yes. they get a tremendous amount of use out of Ramatut. He doesn't appear as Ramatut very often. He tends to appear in his other guises. But I think this is just, you know, there's so much visual imagination at work in this issue. I think this is a wonderful issue. I agree. Yes, I, I will give you no pushback on that. This this is, yeah, it, it's, I, I think that if I had to compare this and issue five, the issue five probably comes out a little bit higher, but uh, just basically because it's introducing Doctor Doom too. But uh, but no, this is this is a, a worthy follow up to that story. Yes. So then in the letters page, now I had remembered that this might be the first issue with a George R R Martin letter in it. It does not have one. I think he shows up next in the next issue. But we do have Steve Gerber who would go on to oh really uh, create Howard the Duck. Of course, you yourself inked Steve Gerber's final comic book. Uh, I don't know if it was his final one. I think that he may have had one or two other things going on simultaneously at DC. But yes, one of his one of the last projects he worked on in his life. Yes. Yes, that you were the regular anchor on. But so Steve Gerber, I assume it's the same Steve Gerber. Uh, yes. He lives in University City, Missouri. He shows up in the letters page here and writes a very opinionated letter. It says, also, the cover was horrible, cluttered with all sorts of vital announcements. Ha! Um, <laughs> Well, Steve Gerber is nothing if not an opinionated guy. <laughs> yes, he was famously opinionated, and that starts here. But yes, a wonderful issue. Okay, you want to go ahead and uh, so turning into mystery, I was going to say fits our five minute rule: five no, minutes doesn't. on books that that aren't done by Stan, Jack, and Steve. But no, but Jack is back. Jack, Jack is, is back. back. For just one issue. Well, Jack is back. I should say. So it's very strange. So with this issue of turning into mystery. First thing you notice is Jack is back. The lead story is penciled and possibly plotted by Jack Kirby. And then even better, Jack is back in the back of the book that you have Tales of Asgard, Jack Kirby's long running series that will run in this issue and the next 40 issues or so of just stories about Asgard that is in the back of the book. Again, credited to Stan Jack, generally perceived to be probably something that was more Jack than Stan by people today. Although Stan would would very much, Stan, that was one of the few times Stan would audibly push back against that. He would be like, people think I had nothing to do with Tales of Asgard. It's not true. But specifically, he would it would really get Stan's back up when people would say he had not had anything to do with Volstagg because Stan was very proud of Volstagg. And it's like, no, I created Volstagg. Whole cloth had nothing to do with Jack. Anyway, but so then, so then I assumed when I saw that Tales of Asgard started in this issue, and I know Kirby did every edition of Tales of Asgard, I assumed that Kirby must be back to stay in the front of the book, but he's not. This is a one issue return for Kirby in the front of the book, and then Kirby disappears again in the front of the book. 
for the next several issues, but he stays on in the back of the book. So Tales of Asgard by Kirby starts in this issue and is here to stay, continues on by Kirby every issue, but then Kirby is about to disappear again from the front of the book. Yeah. Um, well, and yeah, I, I presume that it's Tales of Asgard that brought him back to the book. And what you just said backs that up. I had not looked at the issues coming up, you know, since I read them first, you know, five or six years ago. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, clearly that is that is going to be Jack's baby going forward on this stuff. OK, so uh, is it my turn to talk about these? Yeah. All right. So uh, let but me we get... should probably still try to keep it short. Yeah, <laughs> it's still yeah. not. It's know, no great sh- the, the Kirby lead story is no great shakes, and we should probably still hold ourselves to five minutes on. Yes. Okay. So uh, the return of Kirby, yay, uh, with Heck Inks, which I actually like. I think the combo works well, in my personal opinion. But you know, I don't like uh, it. I never yeah. like Heck Ink and Kirby. Um, so we start out with Thor rescuing a fighter pilot. For some reason, there's a fighter jet flying over Manhattan, which seems unwise. But, um, anyway, so he rescues this fighter pilot, uh, and then we see that he's too absorbed in thinking about Jane to notice that there are all these people talking about this lava man that has shown up at some volcano somewhere. Um, so he's just, meanwhile, just too lovesick to think about any of this. He wants to confess his love and he's about to do it, but then he hesitates as he realizes that, you know, he needs to talk to Odin first. Jane makes it clear that she feels similarly, but she wants him to be able to man up and say it. She doesn't want to be with any guy who can't speak his mind. He then prays to Odin, who is basically like, no, that's not going to happen. And I should say that this issue is the first issue of Thor, I think, ever that is not credited to a different scripter. It oh, is, good point. It says, written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Don Heck. And so, and indeed, Odin is talking more like Odin right away in this first issue that is Stan scripting him, I believe. He's like, speak then, mighty Thor. I grant thee leave to petition me. So we've got yeah. these and thous. And... He says, my heart is torn with love, my father. I crave permission to marry a mortal girl, the nurse of Dr. Blake, the one known as Jane Foster. And then Moden says, have you taken leave of your senses? The god of thunder marrying a mortal? It is impossible. Petition refused. Wait, my father, wait. Hear me out. You must. Too late. He is gone. So right away, we're getting some choice. Lee, Odin, Thor dialogue. They are not talking like the Brooklyn dudes that we have been putting up with, with Arburn's scripting on the book for the last five or six issues or so. We've got some good old fashioned these and thous, which of course, the great irony always of, oh, this, you know, these are gods. So they say thee and thou a lot. Well, of course, the whole idea of thee and thou is that they were informal, is that, you right. know, when when you would use the and thou in sort of like the Spanish, we've sort of lost this idea of having a special informal way of, of referring to people. So sort of like the modern translation of the is dude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or buddy. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it just sounds so formal to us. Um, yes, it does. But yeah, you was the formal version. Thou was the informal version. And uh, yeah, but for some reason, when we got rid of that and became more egalitarian in the English language, we did it by treating everybody like they're a lord. Um, yes. So, <laughs> um, so, when, but, so when Odin says, I grant thee leave to provision me, he, that's less formal than saying, I grant you leave to provision me. It's like saying, it's like saying, I grant you leave to petition me, dude. 
Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> or, or you know, he's, he's his father. So, you know, maybe like sport. You know. Sport. <laughs> Governor. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> no, not that. I don't know what that was. Uh, so, meanwhile, Loki's still imprisoned in Asgard, still trying to find ways to menace Thor from afar. He sees this lava man that we're all seeing headlines about, but Thor is too lovesick to realize is going on. And he's like, I can use him to attack Thor. Dr. Blake is sitting in his office like, oh, what am I going to do? Orden has said I can't say anything, but I can't because I'm in love. But I can't not say anything because I'm in love. Meanwhile, Jane comes in and says, hey, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm going to go work for this other doctor. He's like, that doctor? But he's a wolf. Basically, like, he just basically hits on his nurses. And she's like, yeah, well, you're not doing anything. So, <laughs> bye-bye. So- <laughs> I'm, go- I'm going to work for him in the full knowledge that he is a wolf. And uh, let's just say that's not a sticking point for me in this potential arrangement. Actually, my, my note here says, Jane says, time's up. She'll go work for another doctor who will treat her as a sex object. So- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. So uh, Thor finally notices Lava Man when he actually shows up wrecking stuff in New York City. I will say that we once again have the entire city of New York evacuated between panels. They seem to be really good at that at this point uh, with New York City which I I guess is good in this world. (laughs) You know, okay, coast clear, time to come back. All right, so in the fight sequence with Lava Man, we get this really weird panel of Thor swinging on a flagpole like he's Daredevil or something like that. And it's even weirder because he's holding Mjolnir out to the side. It's just like, it just doesn't, it just looks very much below your dignity. Lava Man then somehow coats Thor in quick, dry lava. It's simply dry, right? I mean, it's, anyway. Lava Man's like, oh, no one could get out of that. I will leave you now to be helpless there. And once again, this is exactly the same thing that we talked about in Spider-Man that usually is one of your no-nos is the whole thing about he's trapped in the lava jacket that he's been given and basically like, oh, I must exert all the effort. I must just do more. And so then he cracks himself out without any sort of cleverness, any sort of trickery, any sort of doing anything that he couldn't have just done in the previous panel. So, right. Um, right. See, I'm I, I listen to your story critiques. You know? Good. I, I pay attention. If only I were a writer, that might that might really help me. Thor creates a whirlwind to take the lava man back to the volcano whence he came. And then Thor follows out there and is able to seal him into the volcano. He then returns and uh, comes back to New York just to find Jane coming back to say, I'm leaving. I didn't want to say without with the leaving. wolf. She is yeah, yeah. the wolf. Yes. So she has she has brought the guy who looks sort of like Tony Stark with her into the office here and is just like, yeah, this is the guy that I'm going with. This guy that you know that hits on his nurses. This is the man I'm leaving you for, just so you know. So then he heads off and Don Blake is all forlorn in his office and looking out the window, being all depressed. The wolf says, Jane is going to work for me, Blake. I'm sure you understand. Don't worry, Blake. You'll find another nurse. And uh, <laughs> yeah. takes his takes his nurse off. So it's sort of a shocking way to end the issue. Like, yeah. It even would not be, I would not have been that shocked if this was the last we'd seen of Jane Foster. And this is not that entirely dissimilar of the way she's eventually written out of the book. She does go off with another doctor who it's implied she might have a relationship with when she is finally written off the book in a much more dramatic fashion later on. But this will all be resolved next issue and she is still going to be here to stay for another couple years on the book. For better or worse. Yeah. So it probably would have been better just to write her out of the book at this point. Yeah. So I got to say, I'm tired of Thor 
creating whirlwinds to whisk his villains away. It is overdone. It is. It seems like it's like, oh, Thor then fights this person for however many five or ten pages and then creates a whirlwind and whisks them away. And it's like, uh, couldn't you have just done that at the beginning, Thor? I think it's it is a lame. I think Wafa Man is a fairly lame villain. And I think that this resolution is certainly fairly lame. And uh, it is disappointing. But it's good to see that they, well, it's certainly great to see Lee writing Odin's dialogue finally. And it's great to see that they are trying to mix things up um, and, you know, have him finally decide at least to confess his love to Jane and decide to defy Odin's will for Jane, which I think will be a major part of the character and the book from this point on. And it's good to finally get to that point. Yes. Uh, and Jane will Jane under uh, Lee's scripting hands will be less awful as we yes. go forward. Uh, you know, even though she was still, you know, has her issues in this issue, she's not nearly as just, you know, terrible <laughs> as, as she usually is when being scripted by one of the other <laughs> by one of the other folks. So it's great to mm-hmm. see Lee commit to this book finally. And it's great to see Kirby back, if only briefly. Yes. So then uh, this is our introduction to Tales of Asgard. It just talks about the origins of the gods here. And, you know, you go back to the icy beginnings of the world. You get to meet Odin's grandfather and father. And I really don't know that there's that much that I want to actually summarize in this, except just to say one of the things I found about Tales of Asgard is Kirby uses a different panel layout in these than he usually does in most of his stories. He usually has these four big rectangular panels in these things, which just gives it a whole different kind of epic feel than the regular sorts of stories that he tends to write. That he does write. Kirby Kirby generally likes to cram in a lot of story into his books. These were kids who were saving up all their money and plunking down 12 cents per issue and he was going to give them a lot of story crammed into every page for those 12 cents and suddenly he gets to relax here and he gets a backup story which he doesn't normally do backup stories and he adopts this new four panel layout and it is just glorious he is you can just feel him relax as he does these pages and really let his art stretch. And it is just gorgeous. And it is so good to finally get this, one of the greatest settings in Marvel history, Asgard, finally come into its own here. And it gets its own rich history that is laid out. And I think, so what do you think of the inking here? Because this is the first we've seen of George Bell. Right. Um, I, I, yeah, unremarkable. I know. I know. I know. You're you're not a fan of George Bell's inking. I don't. Um. I don't dislike it, but it's not like, ooh, wow, yeah. You know, it's it's fine. It gets the job done. I think it's too chunky. The blacks spot in odd, chunky ways, which is going to be an issue. I think that this is not as bad as his work on Fantastic Four, which we're about to see, which I think he is particularly ill suited for. I think that well, well, don't worry. George Bell won't be on very long, and then he'll be replaced with Vince Coletta. Yes. (laughs) will just as kirby makes an early appearance in tales of asgard before he fully commits vince galetta will also appear early in tales of asgard before he fully commits to the rest of the marvel universe this is certainly better than coletta's later inking on this backup feature will be but i'm not a big fan of the inking but nevertheless the art still looks gorgeous kirby drawing the wild waste with the wolves on it and the big viking ships cutting across the water 
And so we get a lot of value being dropped here as we get Emir the Frost Giant suddenly appearing and mentioned for the first time. We also get Surtur the Fire Demon, who mm-hmm. will turn out to be one of the biggest villains in Thor history. He just gets a brief one-panel appearance. We also get to see for the first time Yggdrasil. Pardon yep. me if my pronunciation is bad. The world oh, sure is. This is just an absolutely wonderful feature to have. So basically, we're getting the Marvel take on the Norse creation myth here. So we're just saying, okay, basically, we're going to go give you Norse origin of the world and origin of the gods 101 Marvel style. Like, you know, so they're, they're you know, more, more of, hey, here are the good guys, here are the bad guys than I think uh, the original Eddas really uh, did. To my knowledge, I am not, I'm not a big, I'm not exactly a scholar of this stuff. But uh, I know that um, Loki could be much more of a ambiguous character, even in the original stories. And here they make him out to be the god of evil. So, and, you know, Thor was much more of a oaf in the original stories. And here they make him this uh, highfalutin prince. We're getting Stan and Jack's take on the Norse creation mythology here. Which, uh, which is lovely. Uh, I'm, is and I'm really looking forward to more, uh, more of this. Well, and it's great that there's no story. It's great yeah. that they're just like, we're just going to give you the epic. We're going to give you just the epic backstory of this setting without feeling like we need to tell a little twist story. This is just essentially five pages of glorious art. Yeah. And it, it's and like I said, it's just sort of laying a foundation, sort of putting down a marker like this is the this is what we're going to do here. We're going to lay out a different kind of space. It's going to have different panel layouts. It's going to be different kinds of storytelling. It's going to be a different setting. This is just a different thing that we're going ahead and marking out for the future. All right. So should we jump into Strange Tales? Let's do it. But of course, the next issue is going to be where they introduce the human cobra, which is just like, yes. oh, man, no. All right. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead and jump on to a better things before we have to come back to that. So Strange Tales. Oh, no, I got nothing better for you. I got Strange Tales, which is a terrible book. Oh, right. um, Plant Man. <laughs> Strange Tales, number 113. Even the flaming human torch is helpless before the supernatural power of Plant Man. Okay, so this is this is a five minute one, right? Should yes. we, uh, should we, we, we get Set a time the timer. Okay, hold on. Just one second. It it says on the cover. You can go ahead and start. You can get ahead. In this issue, meet the torch's newest girlfriend, lovely Doris Evans. So, this issue, to me, not only is this issue the first appearance of Doris Evans, she's called Doris on the cover, but already by the end of her first page. And indeed, he calls her Doris Evans when he thinks of her in the first panel, but he's already calling her Dory Evans by the end of the first page. And that will be the name she will be known as to history. But I think that the importance is not just that we meet Dory Evans, who will go on to be a major character, but that this is really the birth of Johnny Storm, one woman man. And I have never liked on those occasions in Fantastic Four history where Johnny Storm is portrayed as being a wolf who is always chasing after a bunch of different women and always on the make. I always like, basically, that's not going to be true for most of Johnny's history. And he is going to be with Dory Evans for years. Then he is going to pretty much transition directly into being with Crystal for years. And then he is going to be with Frankie Ray for years. He is going to be with Alicia Masters for years. And I like, I think that Johnny is someone who is looking for love. I think Johnny is someone who is looking for long-term relationships. And I'm never convinced and never a fan of it when he is shown as someone who is just in it for kicks. I think he is someone who is looking for a serious relationship. And here we have one. We have his first serious relationship begins here. And 
he, but there's this great irony in this relationship in that she does not like Human Torch. She only likes Johnny. She considers him to be a showboat when he flames on. And she says, Johnny Storm, how dare you fly here in that freakish, fiery getup? What do you think this is? A circus? And it's, holy smokes, I don't get it. Dory's mad as a hornet. So, of course, Dory's Evans, <laughs> this is a fun little irony to have him dating someone who doesn't like it. But then it's interesting because then he thinks later she's forcing him to ride in a bus, which he finds humiliating. But he's saying, like, you know, it actually could be good to have a girlfriend who's not super into me being Human Torch in case maybe someday I can't be Human Torch anymore and that I finally have somebody who likes me for me instead of just what I could do. But, of course, the big problem with her character is that she is she is literally a wet hen. She is literally a character who is a damp, a, a damp blanket. She is someone who is always trying to snuff out our main character, putting a damper on the proceedings, quite literally. So she is never going to be a very fun character. Certainly his later girlfriends will be a lot more fun to read about. So once again, we get story plot, Stanley, story script by Joe Carter, who, as you pointed out, is actually one of the all-time great comic book writers, Jerry Siegel, and art, penciling and inking by Dick Ayers. When he goes over to Dory's house, it just so happens that in the background, her father is firing their gardener. Their gardener has invented new special sci-fi shears to make plants come to life, but the father doesn't care. He's fired. (laughs) And then he, of course, later, now he already has special sci-fi shears that can make plants come to life, but then the shears are hit by lightning, which makes them make plants come to life even more so. And uh, Come to lifer come to life for even more so than before. And so then they get hit by lightning and he says, fan my hide. It's a miracle. My invention isn't broken. And then suddenly the plants start fanning his hide. It's like going, the plant, it's fanning me. Wait, I just exclaimed, fan my hide. Is it possible? Can it be? Well, uh, when you consider the various things he could have exclaimed there, it's a good thing that he exclaimed <laughs> the truly yeah. bizarre exclamation, fan my hide. Yes. Good thing he wasn't saying like, well, chap my britches or something like that. <laughs> or I'll be damned. I don't know how they would have made that happen. So then Plant Man, very lame in all sorts of ways. A really lame outfit. He just wears like a green overcoat and a green slouchy hat. And no spandex involved here. He goes ahead, decides, because Dory's father fired him. He goes ahead and frames him for a crime. Johnny then has to investigate. Johnny quickly figures out it was the gardener who got framed, goes to fight him. Plant Man is able to defeat him with wet plants, which of course are no good for Johnny. Finally, they go back and forth. They have several fights. (laughs) Plant Man is hitting him with acorns that feel like bullets. Then he's going to, there happens to be a gigantic vat of water there. He's going to pour the vat of water on Johnny. Then Johnny says, got an idea. It's my only hope. Uh-oh. I'm out of time. <laughs> okay. He says, giant fireball, it's now up to you. If you fail, it's the end of the torch. And then he sends a gigantic fireball into the sky and says, uh, you're beaten, plant man. The fireball's intense heat is evaporating their moisture. Without moisture, they can't live. And now they're attacking you. Because of the increased intelligence you've given them, they realize that you got them into this fix. Says, how dare you revolt against me? Your master, stop you fools. I command you. No, no. And then the revolting creatures break the magical shears that have brought them to life. And uh, so again, I was like a little bit of irony. Oh, it's ironic that he made the plants smart enough to realize that he was a terrible master to them. But no cleverness, not a good story, fairly lame. One thing that's happening more often in these books is the villains are getting away. Plant Man, in this case, hides inside a hollow tree and Johnny can't find him. Yeah. It's uh, kind of lame. <laughs> yeah. 
It's, but, it's, like, uh, it's like, oh, well, we're at the page where we're supposed to end now. So I guess the guy gets away. Yeah. Yes. So then he thinks at this point, now that he has cleared her father's name, that Dory will like him a little better. Uh, Dory will like Human Torch a little better. But she says, you're such a nice boy. Now, if only you could conquer your mad desire to keep flaming on all the time. And he says, you can't win the end. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Plant Man... I believe Plant Man comes back in a later issue here in Strange Tales before he then eventually joins Count Nefaria's crew to fight the X-Men at one point years from now. But um, along with the eel, they're both they're both in that particular batch of henchmen. Yeah, uh, this is um, this is an issue that they printed. Of course, the real tragedy here is no Doctor Strange. There is uh, there's no this is the last ever issue without Doctor Strange in it, I believe. And he will make a glorious return next issue. But uh, yeah, no, there's nothing more dreadful than just a Strange Tales issue that has no actual Strange Tales in it and just has poor old Johnny Storm trying to keep up the front half of the book and failing. Plant Man is lame. Joe Carter, a.k.a. Jerry Siegel, does not coat himself in glory in his scripting. But it is, I do think, a major issue in that we have the, the birth of Johnny Storm, one woman man. <laughs> Johnny Storm, serial monogamist. Johnny Storm serial monogamist, which I think is Johnny <laughs> at his best. I think that is John. I think that is the heart of Johnny's character. Is Johnny is actually looking for love? Actually, is a serial monogamist. I think that uh, there will be a lot of great stories to be had out of Johnny's search for love, his serial monogamy from this point, and not a lot of great stories to have of him as skirt chaser. Well, and you know, it, to be fair, he is what maybe 17 at this point so you know there's probably a little brief period when the hormones first kick in and he's interested in girls that you know he's just like ah girls and then you know but then he figures out oh you know what i actually want a partner i want to you know i want someone i can i can spend some time with uh but then i i also though i agree with you on the whole dory evans thing that i think it's a great idea to give him a girlfriend who likes him for him, but doesn't like his superheroing. Uh, I think that that could be a really nice foil, but uh, they just don't handle it well. Uh, yeah. And that, you know, she really just comes across, they, they, they write her sh more shrewish, you know what I mean? As opposed to, you know, as opposed to say Alicia, who loves the man who's inside the Rocky exterior. She loves him and doesn't dislike the thing. You know, it's just, no, I, I like you for who you are. And here we get sort of, oh, well, I like you, but oh, man, <laughs> again with the flaming on, can't you? Yeah, it just, yeah, she is very much a wet blanket in this whole thing. Okay. Yes. So um, I think I, I think I failed to come up with wet blanket before. I think that was the key phrase I was trying to come up with. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, you also failed to keep that under five minutes. Yes, I totally did. But now you, I'm still going to make you keep Tales of Suspense under five minutes. I will show you up. Show me up. <laughs> okay, so once again, the timer. And maybe I'll need to go ahead and vary my, my timer tones at some point here. But it, for, for me, it's always by the seaside on my iPhone here. So, okay, here we go. Five minutes. Okay, so uh, we have Tales of Suspense. Uh, he is fighting the Crimson Dynamo. And it starts out, it's going to have another failed rocket test. 
which is, you know, an ongoing <laughs> oh my theme. God. How many, like literally how many have we had? This has got to be like, you know, I'm famous for my hyperbole, but I think this is at least the eighth rocket test that's been, that's been tampered with to force it to crash so far yeah. in the Marvel Universe. It's happened, happened twice last month, and here it happened several times again in this issue. So on the splash page, they are teasing that that's going to be happening later in the issue. But then we uh, actually get to see Khrushchev full on, like a whole as a character with dialogue and thought balloons and motivations and caricature faces and everything. So um, he is uh, he is coming to speak to Ivan Vankel, his um, one of his greatest scientists in their interactions back and forth. It's made clear that all commies know not to trust other commies because they're commies and I'm a commie and I know I can't be trusted. So I can't trust him either. So everybody's just like waiting with a knife held behind their backs, just waiting to go ahead and bring it out and shiv you in the ribs. And yes, they, they very much play that up in here. Yes. Crimson Dynamo is what Ivan Vanko is called, or Ivan Vanko. <laughs> uh, and so he's doing a demonstration to show uh, how his armored, his electrical armored suit can help destroy Iron Man. So he has a fake Iron Man show up, a robotic Iron Man. And of course, Khrushchev cowers when he sees the fake Iron Man and and also the tank demo. He also takes out a tank. And we get to see Khrushchev as just a quivering, uh, you know, uh, fearful man. Ivan Vanko is going to come to the United States to try and defeat Iron Man. And also to take out Tony Stark's weaponry stuff. And it's sort of like, why, why do the two go together? Is there some connection between these two? Is there something going on there? So, <laughs> meanwhile, we have a rocket test. And at one point, someone says, hey, you know, uh, uh, I hope nothing goes wrong. And he's like, you know what? That is a good thought. Maybe I should sneak out of here and change into Iron Man in case I'm needed. Um, so that, of course, Tony Stark disappears. And hey, here shows up Iron Man when everything goes wrong. So he's able to rescue the astronauts or the pilots or whatever in the failed rocket test. Vanko at this point is like, OK, you know what? I can't take on Iron Man right now and do the Stark stuff. So let me just go ahead and sabotage Stark's other plants because, you know, Iron Man can't be at all of them. He seems to always be at this one. So I'm just going to go and disrupt a bunch of his other stuff and other plants. So then in meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., we see the first of a not yet named Senator Byrd, not Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia, but um, uh, another Senator Byrd who existed before that in the Marvel Universe, who is going to be a thorn in Tony's side. But the senator is starting to doubt Stark's loyalty to the United States and figures that they need to start investigating. So that's going to come back. Then it turns out that because of all these sabotage, Stark is about to go bankrupt because he's losing his contracts because he can't actually deliver anything. Pepper and Happy, though, profess their undying loyalty to Stark. It's funny, they were just introduced the previous issue, but you know, that's fine. So then Vanko finally decides to come back and attack Iron Man directly, and their fight feels like a bunch of kids, feels like kids fighting together. At one point, Iron Man's like, oh, but I have a force field, because you can't do that. And, you know, it just very much feels like elementary school kids. And then Iron Man uh, records, he has a little miniature tape recorder. This is supposed to be like, you know, one of his high-tech gadgets. A little miniature tape recorder where he's able to record Vanko boasting about how he's the one who has been sabotaging uh, Stark's plants, not Stark himself. So he gets this, you know, uh, evidence. Uh, but then Tony Stark is able to play a tape of Khrushchev saying he intends to kill Vanko. So this is true, but this is a deep fake. 
Yes. Right. So, so yeah, we've, we've already been in Khrushchev's head when he thought I will indeed kill Vanko when he comes home because I don't trust him. But now it turns out Tony was just able to guess that Khrushchev had thought this and goes ahead and fakes himself doing presumably the world's best Khrushchev impersonation because he's talking to someone who actually has personally been talking to Khrushchev. And presumably in Russian. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. Time's up. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that, that one, once again, that just becomes more of a problem because of the fantastic four issue where they were like, Hey, how does he speak English? So, uh, then there's the final thing here is Vanko then trans when he hears that, that Khrushchev is supposedly, but not really, but actually really going to kill him when he comes back, Vanko transfers his loyalty to Iron Man and gets a job with Stark. And then Khrushchev throws a fit back in Moscow. So there we go. Um, in terms of other discussions on this, I, I, I imagine that I'm going to get some pushback on this, but I really kind of like the look of Crimson Dynamo's armor as drawn by Heck. Uh, it's, it's, it's unique. I mean, it's, it's it unique. It is kind yes. of cool looking. It is very squat. You know, yes. so you get, I assume this is Kirby doing the cover and the, on the cover, you get much more of a traditional Kirby armored figure. And this is not that on the inside. No. <laughs> it is a very fat and bumpy, strange robot type thing. Later, the Crimson Dynamo will be, will not look like this. Later, he will look much more normal. But I like it too. I think it's fun. I think I think Heck does generally a good job on this issue. I think that, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I am, uh, you know, as I said, I'm starting to, I'm, you know, Hex negative qualities are starting to creep in a little more at this point, but we still have some flashes of uh, of delightful uh, illustrations, and this issue is one of them. And yeah, it's I think that him being a dynamo, like a generator of electricity, I'm guessing this is supposed to bring to mind like the copper coils that yes. you know would be. And so anyway, it's uh, it's it's a unique look, um, and I, uh, uh, I I like some of uh, Hex character design in this month. Actually, uh, I, I will say that I've got lots of problems with the porcupine we're going to see later, but I, I like the way that Heck renders him. <laughs> we'll see that yes. a little bit. And I All like right. I, I, I love the sequence of Khrushchev being chased down by the tank and yes. sort of, you know, doing this sort of waddling fat guy run uh, <laughs> yeah. as as he's being chased by the tank and sort of squatting down and, and cowering in fear. It's uh, it's really a lot of fun. He, he, he looks sort of like an, uh, an ape or a bear or something like that. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> very well done enough. yes appropriately enough indeed. and it's so. it's good to see happy and pepper reappearing as a strong supporting cast which i think this book badly needed so i guess we just have one more to go tales to astonish is that correct or did i miss one yep just one book left uh no x-men or avengers this week they're both bi-monthly at first so we just have tales to astonish number 48 and the last battle the porcupine so now we've talked about how on you know, the covers of every one of these books, including like, you know, last issue of Tales of Suspense, they were like, oh, you know, introducing in this issue two supporting characters who will, you know, be legendary for years to come, Pepper Potts and Happy Hogan. And it's like, that's actually true. You know, these will eventually be played by Gwyneth Paltrow and John Favreau. These will go on to be major characters living in America's hearts and minds. And it seems like there's no claim they can make that every time they go like, make sure you save this issue, folks, it'll be worth a lot of money later. It's like, that's actually true. They are all actually worth a lot of money later. They can't, there's no amount of hyperbole they can engage in that doesn't turn out to be true. Well, we finally found 
a degree of hyperbole they can engage in that doesn't turn out to be true. Because this this issue claims the dreaded porcupine, a supervillain you'll never forget. Finally, something that isn't true. That is now true. The dreaded porcupine. Who, Who were you talking about? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I just said somebody's name, didn't I? <laughs> I could swear I just said the name of a supervillain. What was it again? I can't remember. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, I, yes. I, 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 I did not start your timer yet. I will go ahead and start it now. Though. Start my timer. Okay. Yes. So, for once, they are claiming too much. They are claiming that this is a great villain for the ages, which it is not. I will just quickly buzz through this issue. For the first, for the first page, we get, <laughs> again... Jan just totally Jan just totally pities Hank by like Hank can't fly and Hank can only shoot himself across town by cannon. And then Jan just sort of flies alongside him, agreeing to limit herself to only doing what he does when she could fly off in any direction at any time and doesn't have to follow his simple arc across town from being shot out of a cannon. But they are flying over a research facility. So we're sort of getting this beginning of Jan as this more generally boy crazy person yeah. who is attracted to all men. And it's never exactly clear. They do a very good job with this in the Avengers Earth Money's Heroes TV show of showing like, yes, she does sort of wolf whistle every guy who walks by, but it's because she's trying to get Hank's goat because she's in love with Hank and thinks he's not in love with her. And so she's trying to get some sort of reaction out of him. And it's never entirely clear in the Stanley issues if that's what's going on or if she's just genuinely someone who just likes men and is just always uh, getting the hots for every man she sees. But so then they're flying over this defense plant and uh, not going there or anything. They just happen to be flying over and she says, you worry about the weapons, man. I'd rather think about all those glamorous, eligible males who must be working there. I wish we had something to investigate down there. Well, it turns out they should be investigating because there is, and of course, disgruntled scientist who is studying porcupines and has decided to make himself a porcupine costume. And then he will become king of the underworld. And well, well, of course, he's at first developing this for the military, but then he's like, oh, why should I just turn this over to the military for like a measly raise? I, I need to go criming with this thing and by the way is disgruntled scientist combined with beard that's yes. really where you get into trouble so uh, so many things don't make sense about the porcupine porcupine oh, no. is you would think he'd be someone who would shoot quills at you instead he's someone who shoots gas that his porcupine quills on his costume shoot gas out at you in various ways and you know you would think shouldn't he be skunk man skunk man <laughs> That's someone who shoots gas. Skunks shoot gas at you. (laughs) Porcupines don't shoot gas at you. But so then it just so happens that Hank and Chan just happened to run into this person again. They briefly passed over him before. Now they are at a bank where Hank Pym has invented anti-burglar devices. So once again, we've got Marvel inventors who are inventing all sorts of unrelated things in all sorts of different places. I have, and, a, note, I have a note that says, what kind of scientist? <laughs> what kind of scientist <laughs> is he? He is a scientist who is a molecular biologist who also invents anti-burglar devices. Porcupine shows up to prove that the anti-burglar devices don't work. And he uses, again, shoots gas like porcupines do into the crowd. <laughs> uh, Jan was already feeling kind of sick. And so then she gets some gas and that doesn't help. And so then porcupine goes ahead and gets into the vault. He steals stuff. He can also fly because we all know porcupines can fly again. So many animals you could have been that do fly, but um, (laughs) I don't know if there are any flying gas spring animals you could have been, but 
you chose one that is neither flying nor gasping. So then <laughs> poor Janda pass out. He then takes her back. Now, again, it's not exactly clear if this gigantic bed is the bed they share, but he sets what, her up. It, what, in a what it says bed. is later in the guest room behind the lab. But that yeah. looks like a really large and luxurious <laughs> guest room. Yeah, I mean, I think that's quote guest room unquote. <laughs> like, oh yes, here's my guest Jan. She stays in my guest room. By the way, I also stay in the guest room in this gigantic bed we have together. Um, so then, uh, Hank then goes back out to find Porcupine. Confront him. Porcupine drops him. This is shades of the first Ant Man movie. Porcupine dumps him in a full bathtub. That's the death trap. Yep. A full bathtub. Jan realizes, wakes up from her illness realizes that Hank is there, uh, goes to rescue him. And he's like, oh, I'm so glad you've come to rescue me. She's like, yes, I've come to rescue you by having a bunch of ants come down into the tub and rescue you. And it's like, well, wait, isn't that what Ant-Man does? Doesn't Ant-Man control ants to have them do things for him? Why is she doing that? But they make it clear that somehow she is using these ants to rescue Ant-Man. Yes. So then they then decide, okay, let's go ahead and defeat him. Uh, with these giant canisters of liquid cement. And we're out of time. So, and that's thanks, it. That's thanks for playing. <laughs> that's the end of the issue. So then at the end, he says, now I'm going to bring you something, Jan. And she says, what can it be? Furs, jewelry, or perhaps a ring? He says, here, Jan, I got this for you. Aromyosin, I want you to go back home and take this antibiotic. I don't want you to have a relapse of the flu. And she says, Henry Pym, I hate you. And he says, like I always say, you can't please a female, which is basically the same line that ended the Human Torch story yes. we just read. So so in, in terms of the whole, like, again, what, again, kind of scientist is he that he doesn't know that uh, antibiotics do nothing for the flu? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, dude, like, my dude, you actually work in biological sciences for something. I mean, I know not human doctor stuff, but, you know, come on. Um, but yeah, actually, one of the things I know you always talk about villains that uh, don't have a consistent theme. And my notes for this one were just all like, pick a theme. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like at one point, you, you missed the thing where he says when he robs another bank using paralyzing pellets and hypnotic pinwheels. <laughs> just have, <laughs> once again, in all caps, theme. <laughs> and then at the end when they like, they make the, the, the like bags of liquid cement that they then spray on him and they uh clog up all of his quills except for the jet quills again theme <laughs> so uh, but i really do like the way that he is rendered by heck i mean this is you know I, I, other people were not able to pull this uh the rendering of this costume off nearly as well as heck does here i love the unique look of his gas mask um and you I know guess. But I put a, why would a porcupine have a gas mask? Well, because he's actually a gas man. Uh, <laughs> gas man. <laughs> uh, he gives him the gas face. Is that another outdated reference, kids? Anything? I, no? I don't know what that means. Uh, it's, it's, what third? Uh, wasn't third base the name of the group? The name of the group? It's a, a yes. rap group from like the late eighties. I remember group. third base. Their, yes. their big hit was "Give Him the Gas Face." Uh, no. Okay. okay. I'm I'm I am old people. I am old, old and I am making old references from my unknown generation's time. Uh, nobody's heard of these people. We're called Generation X, and um, we uh, we we believe it or not are not imaginary. 
and uh, we had things, and I'm making jokes about them, and no one's getting them. Yes. Um, <laughs> so a a generally terrible issue. Nothing to recommend. Hex art is not terrible. Hex art is fine. No, I can't. I can't back up any of your praise for Porcupine. I think it's a terrible book. <laughs> I think it's a terrible villain. But I think that he does a good job with Jan. I think that Jan is a character who Heck has a lot of affection for. Whether she is in civilian garb or in superhero garb, I think he has a lot of fun drawing her. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Well, you have any other thoughts about this week before we about this uh, this month of comics before we sign off here? Yeah, this is a more lightweight month. It's not like last month where we got suddenly hit with X-Men number one and Avengers number one in the same month. This is one of the last months this slim I think we will ever see a weaker Spider-Man issue, a very strong Fantastic Four issue, easily the best book of the month. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, the Fantastic Four is towering above everything else in this month. I will agree with you. Not the strongest month in Marvel's history, but we did have at least one great and a couple of decent, well, one great issue and maybe one decent issue and maybe four subpar issues. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I'll, I'll take the great issue, though. <laughs> yes. Okay, so um, I guess that's it for now. Thanks, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Yep. Okay. Goodbye, goodbye, everybody. Oh, oh, actually, one thing I should mention. We now have a Facebook page. Oh, what? We do? Yes. I Once again, I invited you to be a <laughs> to be an admin on this thing. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, the Marvel Reread Club podcast Facebook page. What? Uh, and <laughs> you invited me to be an admin on this? I haven't seen this. What are you talking about? And I, and I thought we had a whole conversation about this like last week where you're like, oh, was that what that was? I, um, okay. And yeah, we, we've had this conversation before. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, everybody come visit our, come visit our page. Yes. And uh, uh, what I'm, I'm going to start trying to um, take some screen caps as I go through reading these things and uh, uploading them with some commentary to kind of give a little bit of a teaser in terms of what we might be talking about the next episode. So I'm going to try that out for a little while, see how it works, and uh, we may get more of that. But yeah, um, the Marvel Reread Club podcast Facebook page. Okay, awesome. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon. We will, we will see you shortly. All right. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.